Welcome to the One Away Show, presented by BW Missions. I am Brian Wish, and I am your host, and thanks so much for being here. On this show, I sit down with compelling entrepreneurs, authors, and rising leaders to talk through their most transformative relationships, experiences, and epiphanies. Curated with entrepreneurial leaders in mind, we'll dig into these finite moments in people's lives and understand how they helped set their path forward. Robert Chestnut is the former chief ethics officer at Airbnb, a role he took on in late 2019 after nearly four years as the company's general counsel. He previously led eBay's North America legal team, where he founded the Internet's first e-commerce person-to-person platform trust and safety team. He was a general counsel at Chegg, Inc. for six years and served 14 years with the U.S. Justice Department. Robert has one of the most vivacious personalities, extremely likable, very polished, very human. So thrilled to share such an interesting story with you today. Robert, welcome to the One Away Show. Brian, thanks for having me. Of course. It's great to get to meet you talking uh, over Zoom and uh, you know, with what, everything you're doing. So, Robert, uh, what is uh, the One Away moment that you want to share with us today? You know, I, I think for this one, Brian, I'm going to go back to my days as a federal prosecutor in Virginia. Oh, great. I, I, was, uh, I was putting away bank robbers and drug dealers and spies in Northern Virginia. And, you know, the job, frankly, was it, it felt negative. It felt heavy, you know, just because so many people, you know, you're putting away people for the rest of their lives in many cases, a lot of young people. And I, mm. I wanted to do something positive with my life. I wanted to do something where I felt like I was really helping people as opposed to just being the one at the end to put them in prison. So um, I started thinking, what sort of a business could use someone with a federal prosecutor background? Because, you know, you're, you, I talked to a number of businesses. They said, wow, you're a great federal prosecutor, but we don't prosecute people. And I think what happened to me was uh, I became an early adopter of the Internet. Because we had this little company in my jurisdiction called AOL, America Online. And so in order to learn about the Internet, because I kept getting questions about it at work, I got online. And I started looking and using different companies. And one of the companies I started using was eBay because I was uh, into photography. And my moment came one night around, around midnight. My wife was an FBI agent. And she was out doing a search warrant. And so I was, you know, just waiting for the call that, you know, that they got in and everything was okay. And in that moment, it occurred to me, wow, maybe eBay could use somebody with a federal prosecutor's background. So I go online to eBay. I look up their jobs. They said they were in San Jose, California. Brian, I had never been to San Jose. I wasn't sure whether it was in Northern or Southern California, (laughs) but I figured it was California, so it couldn't be too bad. And they didn't have any jobs on the website posted for lawyers. But I didn't let that stop me. I wrote a letter to uh, uh, to eBay explaining why they would have problems with illegal items and fraud and regulation and why I could help them. And I sent the email to jobs at eBay.com. And then my wife called, all good. I went to bed, went to work the next day, didn't think twice, thought I would never hear anything again. And I got home the next day and there was a message on the voicemail that they wanted to talk to me. <laughs> wow, what a, what a story of vision, persistence, and just seeing a, threading a needle. Uh, and also on the federal prosecutor background, how you thought about how do I 
how do I take these skills and how do I apply them right into a you know company where I can feel good, do good, and and, and be good? And it seems like you were able to do that. So I'm really curious, uh, Robert. You know, a lot of the people who listen to our show, they're probably early in their career, they're beating down doors like you just did. They're starting their businesses and their visions. For you, what was it that about you know you said with eBay, there's they're going to have an issue with these goods. What enabled you to be able to see and have the foresight, right, to say this might be an opportunity for myself? Uh, and the fact that they didn't see, given that you weren't, you know one of the first like 10 or 20 employees. I mean, you're very early, right? But yeah. they, they clearly weren't thinking about that. Well, I mean, the first thing is persistence. Yeah, I, I, What I didn't tell you is how many different companies turned me down, how many rejection letters I got, or how many never even bothered to write me back. So persistence is part of it. Part of it, I think, is I understood that companies want people who are bought into their mission, who understand them, right? And I thought to myself, if I'm going to work somewhere, I should first be a customer and see if I like it, right? Because this is what I'm going to be doing, you know, when I go to work and spend hours and hours of my day. So let's find out if I like it. Let's let's understand them. So I actually started, like I, I read a book by, uh, by someone on Oracle and Larry Ellison and decided, you know what? That's just not for me. Mm-hmm. So, I, but I would read and I would uh, use products then when I found something that resonated with me, then that's when I would start to think about, you know, creatively, how could my skill set match with what they need? You know, eBay, fortunately for me, eBay at that time, I think when I joined, I was employee 170. They were still pretty small, but they were already getting into to trouble with regulators. In fact, they were, they had just been subpoenaed over gun sales on eBay at the time that my email fell into their lap. So I think I, uh, part of it was good fortune. Part of it was persistence. And I think part of it is really, you know, be a customer first. Seek to understand a place first before you apply there. Because mm-hmm. what really impressed the folks at eBay was I was a user. In fact, mm-hmm. I had more feedback than half the executive team at that point. <laughs> so. Yeah, no, I mean, that's invaluable. I mean, right, when you can come into a company, have a holistic understanding of the product, how to make changes, and then see it, right, from what you were, the lens in which you were able to see it. How do I keep this company going and protect it against, you know, some negative foul play and, you know, step right in? And uh, what, what a beautiful story. And, and I want to ask you one more question on persistence before we let this narrative play out. As a kid, were there any experiences or stories that you look at where you were knocked down and you had to overcome? Because I think a lot of people in this day and age, they don't take that approach that you just did. Uh, and I'm curious if this has been a sequence or a trail for you throughout the course of your life. You know what? I, I was a, a worker from an early age. I mean, I uh, look, there was a roof over my head and there was food. I had it better than, you know, a lot of people. But we didn't have a, we didn't have a lot in my house by any means. You know, my, my dad got ill when I was fairly young. And so if I wanted spending money, I was going to have to go out and earn it. And so I age 13, I got a job in a restaurant washing dishes and I could ride my bike to the restaurant, you know, and I was cutting grass from an early age and raking leaves and working at a department store and teaching tennis lessons. And, you know, I think I was just industrious 
And I, I think, you know, it was really healthy for me to, mm-hmm. to learn the value of hard work and, you know, the, the importance of you're going to have, you got to make it happen. It's on you, right? Uh, I, you know, I worry about my kids. I want to make sure I don't do too much for them uh, because I think I, if I did too much, I might be robbing them of the, you know, the value of that experience. Yeah. Yeah. And what, what, that's got to be so hard, right? Well, it's, oh, it's impossible. I spoil them. But I, but I question myself as a parent while I do it. <laughs> oh, well, I, I love spending time with a lot of 40, 50 year olds and six. And they all, they all talk about, you know, the, the parents and anyways, I, I can understand, but I'm sure you've done a great, you and your wife have done great as parents. Um, anyways, uh, well, Robert, thanks for the insight about how you grew up, resonate a lot, very similar to you in that regard. So, so let's just take to the eBay days, right? So let's take us to the story. So you got in, eBay called you. They said we were, they left you a voicemail. They said, we want to talk. Take us to that first interview or that first phone call that really opened the door. I mean, how'd it go? What, what, what were the next steps? I mean, yeah. super. No, I didn't know anything. You know, I, I didn't know the ways of business because I was a federal prosecutor, right? I go out and there's a there's a woman by the name of Meg Whitman who's who takes me to, to dinner. That's my recruiting dinner is Meg Whitman. I didn't know who Meg Whitman was, but I knew she was a CEO. And you know, over dinner, she's showing me these charts to show how the business is growing. I don't know what they mean, right? But I know they're going up and to the right. And I and that was a good thing, right? And they told me that they were profitable right from the beginning. And that kind of sounded good to me. You know, like one person met with me to explain like how stock and equity worked at a com- at the company. I had no idea how any of that stuff worked. So it was it was a great learning experience, really, just going through, you know, showing up at this company's door. I was expecting bigger, to be frank. You know, I was thinking, oh, this is probably a pretty big company, right? And I show up and they're like on two floors of one building over in an office park. And I'm thinking, do I really want to give up this secure government gig? Uh, but I but I did. I had a great time meeting all the folks at eBay, and but uh, but I didn't know what I was doing, uh, and, and uh, but but they gave me a job anyway. Yeah, absolutely. And, and okay, so so they gave you the job. You gave up. You gave up uh, security for a little risk and adventure. Uh, was it a a role that you had to come in and design your own? you know, day to day? I mean, how much infrastructure was in place versus how much you had to come in and create what you were doing day to day? Yeah, there wasn't much there. You know, I think the the first week Meg looked at me and said, so Rob, you're in charge of deciding what we can sell and what we can't sell. All the rules globally. Go, right? So back then, you know, it wasn't very clear. Can you Could you sell alcohol? Could you sell tobacco? Could you sell guns? Could you sell ivory? Well, how do you deal with transactions between different states, like ticket scalping? There was a uh, a time where I got a phone call from a state attorney general in Florida who said, you all are uh, illegally scalping tickets to a football game in Florida. And I remember going online and I said, well, let me look. And I said, well, tell me what ticket scalping law applies if the buyers in Georgia, the sellers in Alabama, the games played in Florida and the servers are in California. And then we both laughed because nobody knew. So you had to kind of, you know, figure out everything as you went. Uh, so, uh, no, it wasn't all it wasn't all organized. It wasn't all it was it was something I kind of had to figure out. And, and I had to get it was, the culture was different. You know, when, a, when look, when I was a federal prosecutor every month, if you wanted water, like a water cooler, 
if you wanted to participate in the water cooler so that you could drink the like good, fresh, clean water, you had to chip in a few bucks. If you wanted a cup of coffee, you had to put literally you had to put money in a can. So I show up my first day at eBay and there's a Coke machine. And so I reach in my pocket to get some money. And I'm looking at the machine and I couldn't find where to put the money. Somebody came walking by and I said, hey, can you help me? Where do I put my money in here? And they about fell on the floor laughing. They thought I was the funniest thing they had ever seen. And they looked at me and said, what do you want? I said, I want a Coke. And they just reached out, hit the button, and out came the Coke. And I thought it was i thought I was in heaven. Yeah, this was the best. <laughs> when I found out there were free bagels on Wednesday. Man, startup culture in the 90s must was was uh, it might not ladder up to today, but it was uh, sure something. Yeah, it was it was well for for somebody working for the federal government, it was completely different and and a lot of fun. Yeah, sounds like it. Except no ping pong tables, but you know, I'm sure. Yeah, that- well, no, no, we didn't have a ping pong table yet, but that came later. I think that was uh, with 250 or 300 employees. Oh man, uh, you know what I find so neat, right? Is is eBay has thousands of products. I don't know. They might have millions of products today. Uh, and you were, you were responsible for overseeing what could be sold and what couldn't be sold. That's more external, right? You came from um, a trial and prosecuting world. So I'm curious, you know, you, you were able to oversee a company with a couple hundred people and their internal infrastructure, right? And their internal ethics and, and how they operated. You know, I'm curious back in the early days of a company like eBay, what you noticed and what you were looking into and were aware of from a cultural level, uh, an ethical level within the business and, and where your responsibilities were there, or just where your observations were there at the yeah. time. What I learned is that it starts, it, it really starts at the top. The personality and the character of the leader sets a tone that everyone in the company adopts. Integrity is contagious. So is the lack of integrity. And the main carrier is the leader. And so I I spent time with Piero Midiar and Jeff Skoll. They were the founders. You know, they were there going to work every day. You know, we would go over to Boston Market and get lunch together. Meg Whitman was there every day. And I noticed that these were people that were not, they, I think they were people of good character. They were They were folks that were, they genuinely cared about the community. They were genuinely trying to build something that was good for the world. You know, Meg looked at me right from the beginning and said, you decide what we can sell and what we can't sell. And she said, I want you to help figure out where the line is. And then we're going to take one healthy step away from that line. Mm-hmm. And, and coming, again, coming from my background, that was great because I didn't want to go to jail. Yeah. So uh, I, uh, I, I appreciated the fact that the, the, the culture was very much you know, do the right thing. Right. And, and, and that's the thing you're really uh, healthy and visual uh, stance on, on what to do, right? What's the line? What, give an example of what wasn't, you know, something that, that was too close to the line. One example, I've, I'll never forget my first week because uh, somebody in customer support reaches out to me and they said, Rob, I've got an email to send you, you know, tell us what to do. They send me this email from a user who said, you all are all going to jail because you're selling jarts. I'm like, jarts? What's a jart? Yeah, but I didn't want to go to jail. So I start going on the internet and I look up and find it a jart. It was something that was also known as a lawn dart. It was a, a toy, literally, but it had these big plastic fins and the metal tip. And some genius back in, the I think, the, the 80s or 70s, had put out this game 
where your kids would throw these darts, these big finned darts into these circles on the lawn. The problem, of course, was kids being kids, they wouldn't throw it just in circles on the lawn. They'd throw it at each other. And kids were showing up in emergency rooms literally with these big fin darts sticking out of different parts of their body. So the Consumer Product Safety Commission banned these things. Hmm. So I remember thinking, oh, man, some dummy is putting this on our site. We, I better make sure we take this down. I go on to eBay. We didn't have one set of charts, Brian. We had over 20, right? And that's when it occurred to me. I didn't have a charts problem. I had a problem with every item, every baby toy, every power tool that had ever been banned by the government for safety issues. The enormity of it really struck me that how in the world would we know what to do here? Because people are clearing out their garage. They're clearing out their attic and putting everything on eBay. And we don't know what's banned or not. So I did something that I think someone with a business background would never have done. But someone with my background, it made sense to me. Uh, I picked up the phone and called the Consumer Product Safety Commission and said, hey, can I come out and meet with you? And they were a little curious. They said, sure. So I get on a plane. I fly to Washington, D.C. I meet with the head of the Consumer Product Safety Commission, and I bring them a copy of the JART listings. Now, most companies would never do this, right? They'd be panicked. Oh, my God, you're turning over evidence to the government, right? But I trusted the government. And I said, look, we really care about our users. And we don't want our users to get hurt. Look, they're going to be selling these things somewhere, no matter what. We don't want them sold on eBay. We want to educate people and help people. Why don't we form a partnership? Why don't we work together to educate people? We'll give you free space on eBay. We'll put up free warning messages. You just tell us what the most common recalled items are and be a resource for us when questions come up. Well, they thought this was a fine idea. You know, the the head of the Consumer Product Safety Commission did a tour of all the TV morning shows to talk about how they were using this new powerful tool called the Internet and working with this young, hot Internet company to teach consumers about safety. So it worked well for them. It worked well for eBay. To this day, eBay's never gotten any legal trouble for it. And eBay takes down, I'm sure, hundreds of items every day that are banned because they've got such a good cooperative relationship with the government. Mm, wow. Wow. Uh, what an innovative way to look at, okay, how do I uh, not just work on one thing, but how do I work across the board, form a partnership? And then by by what you did, you almost got the government working for you, you know, to really help oh, you. Yeah. It was their job and our, it was their job. And I figured, but it was our <laughs> responsibility, right? You, you hear that phrase, you're only, a, we're only a platform, right? We only run the computers here. We're not really responsible. But that attitude It doesn't sit well with people. You know, they want you to care. They don't expect you to be perfect, but they expect you to try. And I really felt as though that our users would expect us to do that and want us to do that. And it was a way I thought that would protect our brand uh, and protect our community. Interesting. Uh, You know, Rob, I I want to lean into what you just said. I think it's, it's fascinating. You said it would protect our brand. I'm in a space building, right? Brands for, for people. Most people don't look at, you know, this is, I think, new as well for, for me, the way how you're talking. Most people don't look at the correlation between the legal side and maybe ethical side with brands. I mean, what, um, you know, with your, we can talk about your book a bit down the road, but I'm curious as a person or a person building a brand, how, how do you think about 
ethics and portraying ethics and being intentional about how, how you would go about that. I know we're going a little off the eBay story, but I do think the tie-in here is, is quite fascinating. Yeah, you know what? I think the world is changing. Uh, you know, with the internet has come a new connected world where people and consumers are empowered. But look, if you work for a company today, you want more than a paycheck. You want to work at a place you're proud of. You want to play, work at a place that has values aligned with your own. And you want to feel like you're doing good in the world. And consumers are the same way. Consumers want to do business with companies that have values aligned with their own. That's, we live in an age of conscious consumerism. And all the data shows that just in the last 10 years, the needle has swung way over. Now, 80% of consumers call themselves val, you know, values conscious. They care about the values of the places that they do business. So, and what we found is that companies that care about values, that are perceived to have values and integrity, outperform the stock market and outperform their competitors. You know, in the old days, it used to be business is a dog-eat-dog world. You can't worry about being nice. Today, I think you can't really achieve your full potential as a business Mm -hmm. unless you are thinking about how your business does good in the world, what your company's values are. Because that's how you're going to attract the best employees today. That's right. how you're going to get brand loyalty. And I think businesses are slowly coming to this recognition that it's not just all about money it, and not all about a short-term perspective. It's about a longer-term perspective and doing the right thing. And ultimately, I think that's the better path to long-term success. Mm-hmm. Couldn't have said it better myself if you if you asked me to try. So, Robert, your, your book, Intentional Integrity, which has come out, which I think is filling a lot of your passion and in, in your stage right now in life. So to your point, you said people want to work for companies that lead first with their values and values that they align with. From what you've written, researched, learned over you know the decades of your experience, you know, what what are companies doing? What can companies do today to really lead first with those values, show the consumers they're doing that? to attract great talent, to keep customers, you know, aligned to their brand. You know, what, what have you noticed from that in that regard? Well, first, you've got to know who you are, Brian. I mean, you, what's your North Star? What, you know, why does your company exist? Why is it good for the world? Can you answer that question about your company? And if you haven't defined it and put it on the wall and talk to employees about it, then you're missing it out. Because look, profit is not purpose. You need a greater purpose than just making money. What is it? And once you understand that, you've got to be able to articulate it to your employees and articulate it to your customers. That's how you get loyalty, both from inside and outside the company. And But I think too many times people are rushing into business and thinking that it's only about, well, how can I make money? And yes, you need to make money, you know, because otherwise the business can't exist. But you got to think bigger than that. You've got to think about why is my company good for the world? And you've got to s- slow down for a minute and define that North Star, define that purpose. And I'll give you an example. Look at eBay. Well, let's go to Airbnb. I talked about eBay a while. I thought when I first saw Airbnb, I thought, oh, well, I get it. They're, they're like eBay. You know, they're, they're taking advantage of underutilized resources, something that somebody else isn't using, uh, underutilized space, right? So I get to the company, start interviewing at the company. I find out I've got it all wrong. The mission of the company is to connect people. The mission of the company is to connect people from different backgrounds and different cultures through encouraging immersive travel, 
where, you know, instead of traveling and going to stay in a westernized hotel and having coffee at Starbucks, you're actually staying in a neighborhood and meeting people who really live there and getting to know them. That's why Airbnb exists. Now that they define that, both internally and externally, you now have to make decisions based on that. Mm. So uh, my first month at Airbnb, stories, news stories start coming out that guests of color were being discriminated against on Airbnb, that guests like uh, that blacks and uh, uh, other users of color are being turned down you know, when they ask to stay at a place because of the color of their skin. Right. Mm. And a movement grew up out of it. There was a hashtag Airbnb while black, where people started telling stories of being discriminated against. Mm. So I'm the lawyer, right? I'm the general counsel at Airbnb. I go off and do my legal research. What is Airbnb's legal responsibility? You know, Airbnb doesn't encourage discrimination. Airbnb, in fact, says on the website, don't discriminate. Is Airbnb legally responsible when these lawsuits start coming in? In fact, does the discrimination housing laws even apply to Airbnb? It's a private home, right? So I go do my research. I go have my first big meeting as general counsel with Brian Chesky, founder, CEO of, of Airbnb. And I sit down with Brian and I start going through the law on this. Brian holds up his hand to me and says, stop, I don't care. I said, what do you mean you don't care? And Brian said, Rob, you got to understand. Airbnb's mission is to connect people. It's to help people feel like they belong in a different place and help them connect with the local community. Rob, if people are truly being discriminated against because of the color of their skin on our website, we are failing as a company. We're failing as a company. So it doesn't matter what this quarter's numbers look like. We're failing. So Brian looked at me and said, Rob, we're going to fix this. I don't care what it costs. We're going to fix it because we've got to. And that was it. And Airbnb put together a, a, a big internal team. They partnered with external groups. And they've implemented a number of changes to the site that have gone a long way to reducing discrimination on Airbnb. Uh, some of it at a cost. I remember one thing we did. We required every user, not something buried in a privacy policy. We actually put up a screen an intermediary screen that said, I will accept all, regardless of the color of their skin, their nationality, their religion, their sexual preference. Yes, I agree. No, I don't agree. That wasn't the law, but Brian said, I don't care. And we said, well, you know, Brian, you know, we'll probably have some people that won't agree to this. He said, I don't care. We lost 1.1% of our users in 30 days. Gone, just like that. Their bookings, everything gone. Brian said, I don't care. And we did. And look, to the, to the point I made earlier, I think Airbnb's brand and I think their business will be much stronger in the long run for having taken a stand like this, right? But we didn't do the right thing for this quarter's numbers. We looked and understood our mission. And we acted and did the right thing according to the mission. And we let the chips fall where they will fall in the long run. And I think ultimately it's, it, you know, it, look, the company's doing extremely well and I think we'll continue to do well. Absolutely. I mean, I think that really speaks, right? You said that uh, ethics start at the founder level, right? And Brian said, let's build a more inclusive culture for everyone. Now it fits our mission to for belonging. If it takes a short-term loss, so what? Well, 
Well, the world has moved uh, in the direction of that, what you guys did in that very way. And I'm sure you guys are reaping the massive benefits of, you know, a, what felt probably like a big decision internally at the time, but has had an yeah. even bigger positive payoff. Well, Brian always says, uh, he uses the Gretzky quote, uh, skate to where the puck's going, not to where it is. And you can see where the world was moving. And what, where the world's been moving, I think, inspired and motivated Brian and Joe and Nate to start the company. That dictates the decisions that are made at the company. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Appreciate the stories at eBay, Airbnb. You know, Robert, your your career has had a lineage, you know, of being in, in similar positions. I'm sure different things across the board. I, I'm curious, you know, when you when you look at what you've done, what you stand for, and then even the book uh, that you've written, are there, you know, any stories that that stick out just that, that need to be shared, right? Where you played a pivotal role in changing the course of uh, inter- poor ethics internally or instituting a policy that uh, really changed the shape of how a company operated. I mean, do any, does anything stick out to you from, from your career? That's like this, this needs to be shared. This was the right thing and really changed the trajectory of the company with how we operated at the values level. I guess it's been like six or seven years ago, the Me Too movement emerged and a number of problems came out about Uber. I remember reading the, the Me Too stories, reading the issues at Uber and Uber is right down the street from us at Airbnb. And I remember thinking all these companies, all these leaders are having problems at all these different places. The world's really changing. And by the way, it's a good thing, but you know, these problems could happen anywhere. We could have problems at Airbnb. Somebody really ought to do something about this. And then I thought for a minute and said, wow, I wonder who that someone would be. And then I realized, look, I was the general counsel. I was the one that was got to deal with these problems when they arose. Why not proactively do something about it to, to set the tone, change or set the culture so that that sort of thing wouldn't happen? So I remember again talking to Brian and, you know, we didn't have any answers that first day, but Brian looked at me in Brian, typical Brian fashion and said, uh, go big. So I said, all right, we'll do it. So we started an integrity program at the company uh, because what I learned, Brian, is, you know, silence is the enemy of integrity. In cultures where no one talks about integrity, that's where you have problems. Integrity is contagious. So if leaders talk about it, and then their actions match what their words are, that inspires everyone else. You know, leaders are the thermostat for integrity. Leaders, by their words and actions, change the temperature of a company, the environment where everyone lives. So what we needed to do is we needed to have a conversation about it. You know, it was funny. I was, uh, I was thinking, where, where do companies talk about integrity? I say, like, well, well we, you know, we've got a code of ethics but the code of ethics is usually something that a law firm mails over to you, or you, you go online and you find another company's code of ethics, and then you copy and paste it and put your company's name at the top, right? And then you email it out to everybody and say, check a box that you've read it. Well, you're not changing a culture that way. Everybody knows that all you're doing is satisfying a lawyer or those, those compliance posters in the break room. The ones in the tiny little four-point font, you know, that are off in the corner by the dripping pipes that nobody reads. 
that doesn't change it. If you want to change the culture, you've got to actually be human and authentic and leaders have to actually do it. So part of the integrity program that we built, um, I would go to every new hire orientation class every week. All the new employees for, for Airbnb would come to San Francisco and they'd get a week of training, 25 classes. Uh, it became 26 because I said, I want to talk about integrity to the new people. And they said, oh, Rob, a lawyer talking about integrity for an hour. We're not trying to drive these people away in their first week. Come on. And I said, no, I said, I think we can make this interesting and relevant. They do blind surveys at the end. The integrity class became the number one ranked class out of all of orientation, beating out even the history of Airbnb, which no one thought would ever be beat. <laughs> and the comments people got in the, in the surveys were things like, I've never been in a company that actually talked about this as being an important value. I didn't think this stuff was actually interesting. I never mm. thought about it. Um, it means so much to have a leader come in and talk about this to us. Mm. And it resonated with people. And we did a number of things like that. And it, it became actually a topic of conversation. We did little videos, little three-minute funny videos about integrity. Leaders would appear in these videos and people would voluntarily, we didn't require people to watch them. We just sent them out and we would get over 2,500 employees voluntarily watching an ethics video, if you can imagine it. But it just became part of what we were as a company and as a culture. And I think the company is you know, far less likely to have those sorts of issues because it is something that leaders actually talk about. Mm. I, I love that you're talking about it. it's the actions and it's the internal precedence that the people at the top set. So things are brought through the mainstream of the organization and you've been able to, it sounds like work with great leaders and then also be able to be part of inflicting those uh, changes uh, into the undertones of, of companies uh, through your background and expertise. And like, how cool, right? At, at some of the top tech companies that people rave about uh, to this day. So what are, what are rewarding you know, roles that you've, you've shared and been able to build internally at companies? Robert, one of the questions that I have is um, we're in a very, I'd say, progressive time right now uh, in the world globally. If you're a company today, right? If you are... 10 employees or you're a hundred employees, right? If you were to go into any of those companies, what, what are the issues? What are the, I get every company is different, but where would you really orient the compass uh, for a company today at 10, hundred or a thousand employees? What are the things that need, need to be fundamentally thought about right now in today's times to make sure companies are aligning their values to where the world is going? From employee one, it's got to start with purpose, North Star, defining it. Why, why does this company exist? Why is it good for the world? You need to have that figured out right from the very beginning. So that is for the, for the one employee task, that would be write, write what your company's purpose is. Write your North Star out. It might be one sentence. That's fine. Or it might be, I think Hewlett Packard did this. And I think it was a page. Great. But you got to do that and you got to do it early on. Um, you got to think about diversity early on. And I think too many times people talk about diversity just as a good thing to do. In reality, it's a lot more than that. Diverse teams come to better solutions faster than homogeneous teams. There's a lot of scientific data. There's a guy by the name of Matthew Syed who did a book, Radical Minds, I think. And it's about this idea that a team of, with people from diverse backgrounds, diverse thinking, diverse life experiences, they bring more to the table. 
I don't want to walk into a room with five people that look like me because chances are we're going to miss something. Uh, I've never been discriminated against in my life. But if I'm not in a room with people who have been discriminated against, I'm going to miss things that I need to understand in order to build a company properly. And a problem if you start thinking about diversity when you're a thousand people is it's really hard to catch up. Mm. You know, so I think diversity is something that I'd be thinking about, um, you know, when you get to 10 employees, because when you're at a thousand, if you've got a thousand people and you're hiring a hundred a year, you, you have a hard time changing the makeup of your company from a gender perspective and a race perspective. It's really hard because you're just not hiring enough people. So that'll be another one I would be thinking about. Yeah, no, I mean, I think what's really interesting as you're talking is, is you're approaching it from an early stage company. And what, what is the optimal infrastructure that's going to guide the company for the long term? Not what they sell products, not how much they're making, but what's the North Star mission, purpose, values? And then also, what is the, um, like you talked about diversity. You know, it's funny with our company, we, we brought in a diversity um, consultant in, in January. We've shifted so many things internally. You can't see it quite externally yet, but I think you're, you're absolutely right. Being a smaller company and being more nimble, you have the ability to make more swift changes to the underlying infrastructure of what you're doing. So very, very interesting, um, Robert. I'm going to add one more, okay. and that is who are your stakeholders? Mm. For so long, companies operated under this idea that there was only one stakeholder. Mm -hmm. That stakeholder was your shareholders, your investors. So, and Look, Milton Friedman encouraged this thinking. Whatever's good for the shareholder, that's what you have to do. In fact, you had to do that. You had no choice. That was what was, quote unquote, ethical. The problem is if you only are thinking about your shareholder, you'll do things that are actually bad for your company because you're thinking about your North Star is the stock price. Yeah. And you might dump a lot of carbon into the air. Oh, that doesn't matter because fixing it would hurt our shareholders. Uh, or you might do business with a company on the other side of the world that mistreats its employees. Or you might dump a lot of bad stuff in the river next to your factory. But you might say, well, I'm just thinking about my shareholders. The truth is that a modern company needs to think about stakeholders. And the stakeholders are, who is it that you owe something to? Who are the people that you need to be thinking about whenever you make significant decisions? Mm. At Airbnb, everybody in the company knows who the five stakeholders are. The five stakeholders at Airbnb are guests, hosts, investors, employees of Airbnb, and the world at large. Mm. So we felt as though we owed something, not in a legal sense necessarily, but in a bigger sense of why we exist. We owe something to all five groups. If we make a decision, we are always thinking about what's the impact on all five. You know, sure, there are times where you make a decision that's good for you know, one or two stakeholders and not for others. But if you're consistently making decisions that exclude or ignore one of those stakeholders, then you're not operating properly. That's not, that doesn't have integrity. So another thing I'd have companies thinking about from the early days is, who are my stakeholders? Who do I, who do I want to be thinking about when I make decisions? And you know, what metrics are you going to use to make sure that each of them are healthy? So I think if Uber had thought of their drivers as stakeholders right from the beginning, I think they would have operated differently and probably avoided a whole lot of problems. You know, and that's just one example. I just don't think a lot of companies give, early companies until it's too late, give this thought to right. 
in the internal infrastructure and that fabric that glues it together. So well, I appreciate your perspective at such a high level, uh, the way in which you would think. I mean, this has been a fascinating conversation. Robert, I want to talk a little bit about your book, Intentional Integrity. Tell us a little bit about what it's about, why you wrote it, you know, who you wrote it for. I mean, I would love to hear from you. Yeah, Brian. Well, the funny thing, Brian, is we've been talking about my book for the entire hour. You know? I, I know, I, I know, but I just I want to give like concrete. I got you. You know what? Know. Yeah, just the idea that the, the book's not Plato and Socrates. The book <laughs> is actually stories uh, from everything from when I was a prosecutor through eBay and Chegg and Airbnb, uh, but all written through the lens of um, what is integrity and how do you operate with integrity as a business? And why is it actually the best course for you to take as a business? I, I, I was never planning on writing a book, to be honest. And I, after we did an integrity program at Airbnb, you know, I was telling my wife about it. And my wife early, she's a venture capitalist, but in her, earlier in her career, she had been in the publishing industry. She started hearing this and she was like, you got to write a book. You got to share this with other people. I'm like, I don't have time. I'm a general counsel. I'm not a writer. I don't want to do that. And she's like, no, she said, you, you built this great program at Airbnb. Thousands of companies need to be doing this. This is the way all companies need to operate. And the way they'll find out about it is a, is a book. And I said, yeah, I know, honey, but I don't have time. She said, I'll get you a writer and I'll get you a major publisher to publish the book if you'll do it. And I said, oh, yeah. All right, honey, you get me a writer and you get me a major publishing deal. I'll do it. And of course, my wife, within two months, had a writer and a major publishing deal for me. And so I sort of went into it begrudgingly. And I remember telling the writer, all right, I'm going to give you Monday nights. You get me on Monday night from 6 p.m. until 10 p.m. And then you'll go off during the week and write. And that's what we did for over a year. Wow. And by the time I was done with the project, I loved it. I learned so much. You know, you think when you write a book. You think that you know everything and that you're <laughs> going to share it with everybody. In reality, writing a book is itself a learning journey because mm. then you got to think, well, I can't just say that. I kind of need to get another perspective or some proof. So I ended up going out and meeting with a lot of interesting people from all walks of life because, again, I believe in diversity. So I met I spent time hanging out with Carlos Santana, who actually is a big believer in integrity. Adam Silver, commissioner of the NBA. Eric Holder, former attorney general, um, so many uh, interesting people who sort of helped me. Dan Ariely, who's a fantastic behavioral scientist from Duke University. I ended up learning a ton uh, in the entire project and, and putting it all in the book. So um, what a wonderful experience I've had with it. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. I, I just I just watched Carlos Santana's masterclass on uh, uh, creating music with flow because I'm learning the yeah. guitar. Um, anyways, I was like, someone that was like, wow, what a charismatic individual. What a great, what a wonderful, <laughs> what a wonderful man. I, I've really enjoyed my time with him. It, yeah, I bet. And it's so cool, right? You, you brought in all these diverse perspectives and, and learned, what do you think you learned about yourself most writing the book was a learning journey for you, but you know, when you were able to say, okay, this is the, you know, turn in the final manuscript, you know, what yeah. when you look back, what, what do you think where you changed the most? And then as you think about the, let's just say this book had a North Star, right, of impact that you wanted to have. What would you say that is? Well, I think the book helped me understand myself better. Hmm. Uh, I think what I learned is that rules had been sort of a, a theme throughout my life. You know, I tell the story, a, a story about my mom 
uh, in the book uh, and, and, and how she went back into the grocery store with me when I was young to return money to the cashier because the cashier had given her too much change and how that impacted me. And you know, like as a prosecutor, rules were important. But I think it also caused me to think more deeply about what integrity means and how hard it is. Look, nobody's perfect, right? We're all human. Integrity is not perfection. Integrity is really, I think, about an intentional journey, about defining a North Star and what integrity means for you, and then following it. And even then, when you, when you fall off the horse, which you're going to do, uh, having the self-awareness to recognize that you've fallen, admit it, and pick back up and, and go again. So I think it really helped me understand my life journey a little bit. Um, and look, I, the, my my North Star in writing the book uh, is to influence business. Look, I, I think that too many people are living under this old concept of businesses all about just making money and it's dog eat dog. Mm. I think they're not reaching their full potential as a business. And frankly, I think the world needs business to step up and take on more than just making money. So I think if they do it, they'll find that they're more successful and the world will be a better place. So that's what I'm after. Yeah, I love it. No, I love the intentionality behind the book. I mean, I'm sure you've been told this before, but you have this just like vivacious uh, personality you just kind of come through. So it comes, you know, you glow when you talk. So it, this has been a fun conversation. Learned a lot. Robert, where, where can people find you, connect, buy the book, uh, and get to know a little bit more about you and your career? Great. So uh, the book's available everywhere. It's called Intentional Integrity. In fact, Brian, we're in luck. I've actually got a copy of it right here. Uh, it, uh, it just came out in paperback with a snazzy new red cover. Ooh, it looks uh, good. Isn't that nice? Yeah, the original yeah. hardback uh, is a, a, a very nice white cover, but I, I like this paperback that just came out. It's available uh, on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all fine bookstores. I love local bookstores. You can reach out to me through LinkedIn. Now, I'm on LinkedIn just about every day, actually, doing a post about integrity and in business. And I always love hearing from people through LinkedIn. So reach out and connect with me there. There's also, of course, the inevitable website. And mine is you know, a snazzy uh, site, as you would uh, expect. It's uh, www.intentionalintegrity.com. Love it. Love it. Well, Robert, can't, can't wait to keep following you on the journey. Best of luck. Thanks for all the great work you've done in the world and are continuing to do. And uh, excited for uh, the book and, and the adventure it takes you down. Thank you, Brian. Thanks for having me. Take care. If you enjoyed this episode as much as I did, I hope you leave a review on the platform of your choice and share it with a friend who you think would find it valuable. If you'd like to receive our written newsletter and thought leadership, head on over to bwmissions.com backslash newsletter and subscribe. See you on the next show.